Well, good day, everyone. Uh, I'm Dave, if we haven't met. Uh, really looking forward to looking at these incredible action-packed passages this morning, ones that really are super applicable to us and the way we live our lives. Now, before we do that, though, why don't we just pray again? Pray that God would get our thoughts onto what he's saying and uh, we would be changed by what we read. Let's bow our heads and let's pray to God. Father, thank you that you are not a silent but a speaking God. Lord, you have told us who we are to be, what we are to do, and what it means to be men and women who worship you and follow you. As we look at your word this morning, Father, we ask that you take away the distractions of our lives, of our minds, the things that are pulling us this way and that. Make it hard to concentrate, Lord. Help us focus. Father, we also pray uh, that we would not leave here today uh, unchanged, the same, but transformed, made more and more in the image and likeness of your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' powerful, pure and holy name that we pray. Amen. Growing up, my dad um, had a book on his shelf called The Greatest Speeches in History. My dad uh, was a terrific father, but let me tell you, absolutely hopeless at anything useful. You know, he would burn water in a kettle. He is, could barely do his, I think he invented Velcro shoes. He can barely do his shoelaces up. But I'll tell you what he could do. He could read. If reading was an Olympic sport, he would win it. Unbelievable, like, mind, thinker, reader. And he had his own little library in his study. Most of the book titles, I couldn't even, like, make out what they said. But there was one that really struck to my memory, and this was the one. Greatest speeches in history. I tried to read it when I was a kid and couldn't get through it. Um, but I messaged him this week and said, could you tell me what's on this list? And he sent through the, the picture of the contents page, and two things struck me. First of all, how many of the speeches were modern? That is, they're speeches that you and I would be familiar with and that you and I actually could listen to uh, if we wanted to. Does anyone want, anyone want to have a guess what one or two of the speeches were? Anyone? Martin Luther King. Yes, I have a dream. Winston Churchill. I won't do the voice. I'm so tempted to do the voice. I will. No, I won't. You'll lose respect for me immediately. And I've just started here, so I don't want to do that, but I'm thinking it. Yeah, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, JFK. These are speeches that you can listen to here and be inspired by. And that's one of the three um, gradients they gauge a good speech by. The, the eloquence of the speaker, the content of what's said, and also the effect. In other words, how are you changed, gripped, transformed by what you've heard? But the other thing that struck me as I looked at this list wasn't what was present, but the opposite. It was actually what was absent. If we had to gauge speeches, not just by their eloquence, how they're spoken, but by the content of what they say and by the effect they have on the listener, there was one speech, in fact, the speech, the greatest speech in history, the speech which has transformed individuals, families, generations, countries, the very shape of the world we live in today more than any other. It's number one, daylight is second, and it wasn't there. However, I am delighted that it's this very speech I'm talking about, which we're looking at in detail today. If you have your Bible open, and that'll be super helpful as we go on this morning, look at Matthew chapter 28. We see there at the very end, uh, the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It's just 61 words in the English translation we have, uh, incredibly brief, yet despite its brevity, incredibly powerful. 
despite its brevity, incredibly influential and changing to the people who hear it and have read it. It's titled The Great Commission, um, and in my uh, opinion, and in the opinion of others, it is the speech which has changed the world more than any other collection of words in the history of mankind. Isn't that amazing? Put it this way, one way or the other, whether you know it or not, the reason you're here today, either in the Rand or at the Hall, either tuning in the line, is as a direct result of this speech. Whether you realize it or not, if you've been invited today by someone, if you're a visitor with us, what's been behind that invitation, I hate to give it away, was this speech. If you've just happened to stumble in off the road, you've just come or you've just happened to tune into us today, well, the very way we do church today has been formed, formulated by these words. These words have changed everything about life as you know it. So what is it about them that makes them so influential? Well, what better thing for us to do than to just look at the, I guess, the core of what Jesus says here. Have a look at verse 18 and 19 of chapter 28, just in those last little paragraph. Have a look, 18 and 19. This is the best summary we have. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the mission statement of what it is to be a Christian. This is the mission statement of what it is to be in the church of Jesus. This is what we are to do, even deeper than that, who we are to be. Jesus is telling Christian people, those who love the Lord Jesus, who are disciples of the Lord Jesus, that to be a Christian means that you will be involved in sharing your faith. You will be involved in seeing other people become Christians. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. They're almost one and the same. I became a Christian when I was 28 and I remember it wasn't long after being converted and becoming a follower of Jesus that this teaching, being a Christian and telling other people about being a Christian, sharing my faith so they will become Christians, this became very clear to me early on. I'd hear it all the time from the pulpit, from pastors would talk about it, growth group leaders would lead about it, I'd hear other Christians talk about it. I mean, this was just part of what it is. And if you've been a part of EV Church for any period of time, you will know this is a deep conviction of this church as well, isn't it? that you are to share what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, that this is who we are to be. And yet I want to say that despite how clear this is, despite how clearly Jesus says it, and despite how clearly it's taught in this church and, and other churches all over the world, just because it's clear and relatively simple doesn't make it easy. Evangelism. And that word means the proclamation of the good news, telling other people about Jesus. Evangelism is, I reckon, up there with the very, very hardest things Christians are called to do. In fact, let me go so far as to say, I think the vast, vast majority of Christians would say, telling other people about Jesus, sharing my faith, is the last thing that I actually really feel like doing most of the time. And if you don't feel that way, you're preaching next week as you can tell us how it works. Because oh, you're not actually, but <laughs> please come and see me. I mean, this is such a struggle for all of us. I've heard it put this way before. Here's a quote. I love this quote. 
Listen to this one. Evangelism is one of the few spiritual topics that Christians and non-Christians agree upon in entirety. Non-Christians don't like hearing it. Christians don't like doing it. So, so much better for everyone involved if we all agreed not to bother at all. Don't say amen, but that's a good quote. <laughs> My first experience with evangelism was traumatic. Okay, I've become a Christian. I'm 28 years old. I'm engulfed with passion for Jesus. I want to tell everyone I know about Jesus. So I call up my oldest friend, Mike. I say, oh, let's catch up. You know, we go for a beer. I go to a pub, um, catch up. I've known this guy since primary school. Even though I'm a Roosters supporter and he's a South supporter, we're still good friends. And um, maybe not now, but we were good friends at the time. And so we meet up and, and we go for a drink. We sit in the pub in a beer garden and we start chit-chatting and so on and so forth. And then halfway through, I decide to cross the evangelistic pain line. You know that line. And I do it the worst way imaginable. Like, oh, we're in a beer garden. Oh, look, it's a beautiful day. Say, so, Mike, look at the blue sky. You ever wonder who made the sky blue? Like, Honestly, if you could give our Guinness World Records for the worst spiritual, spiritual interchange, interlude, introduction, I win it. Who made the sky blue? Oh my goodness. Anyway, he takes a sip of his drink and he puts it down. And he goes, Dave, let me stop you there. I'm really happy that you've become a Christian for you. That's great for you. I can tell you're happy. That's great. He says this verbatim. This is what he says. He goes, but don't you ever, ever talk to me about this again. I thought it was going to be easy. When I became a Christian, it seemed so simple, so clear. I thought, oh, everyone else is just doing it wrong. <laughs> it's going to be easy. But it wasn't. Discouraging, awkward, tricky, demanding, difficult. It's very simple for us to lose heart and eventually stop trying altogether. And yet I want to suggest to you today two things. Firstly, that even though evangelism is difficult. That doesn't mean we don't do it. I know that sounds so simple, childlike almost, but let me repeat it again. Even though it is difficult, and it is, that is not a reason not to do it. But secondly, I think it's very possible that in our endeavors in the past or the present to share our faith, we can make it more difficult than it needs to be. And a large part of that problem can actually be traced back um, to our motivation for being involved in, in evangelism at all. I, I think we think, we convince ourselves, I'm not confident enough to share my faith. I don't know all the answers that someone's going to have. I, I don't know how the opportunity presents itself. And I want to say, amen, amen, amen. That's true. Those, those things are reasons. But in my experience, it's not the biggest thing that stops us. I want to suggest that the main reason we struggle isn't how we do it or what we are to do, but why. And so today I want to ask you, as we look at these very few words, 61 words, to come with fresh eyes. Would you do that with fresh ears? To reconsider what God is saying to us in this passage and to allow God's work to speak powerfully through what Jesus is promising us here. Okay, before we get there though, have your Bible open. Just remind yourself of, of what we learned last week. Just remind yourself of where we're at in the Bible. If, if you haven't been with us so far, we've been looking at the last part of the Gospel of Matthew. 
And last week we heard all about the climax of this gospel, this biography of Jesus, which is the death of Jesus. No wonder we call it Good Friday. I always think Good Friday is an undersell. It should be Great Friday, the day that Jesus went to the cross. He did so for us. He drank the cup the cup of wrath that we deserve, and he did it so we could be forgiven, so we can call God Father. That's what we learned about last week. Jesus physically died. But as many of you will know, that's not the end. Come to the very beginning of chapter 28. Have a look there. Look what happens at the very start of chapter 28. We've got Jesus' body buried in a tomb, soldiers guarding the entrance, However, on the third day, which is a Sunday, early on Sunday morning, a violent earthquake takes place. An angel rolls away the stone from the tomb and several women had come to anoint Jesus' body. Now take note of that. The men, what do they do? They run. The women, they stay all the time. They're confronted by this angel. Look at verse 5. Let me read this. The angel says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here He has risen. I don't know how many times you've heard that before, but my plea for me and for you today is if you are a Christian, let us never lose our awe at the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. It's true. He physically rose. Look at verse 9. The women, terrified seeing this angel... Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Just a sidebar here. Can you imagine seeing the risen Lord Jesus? You know, you know you've seen him die. You've seen him now. Now in front of you, he's risen from the dead, and he greets you with, G'day. That's what it means, G'day. The women respond appropriately, don't they? They fall to their feet and they worship him. Now worship, we worship all sorts of things, sports teams and politicians and ideas, all sorts of stuff. But worship should only be reserved for God. And that's what these women do. The women meet Jesus, the physical Jesus, and they understand now what the resurrection means about the identity of Jesus. He is worthy of worship because he is God. They fall to his feet and worship him. Verse 10, then Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, there's much in the resurrection for us as Christian people to rejoice in. And can I say, if you're not a Christian here today, firstly, we love you. We're so glad you're here. You're tuning in. We're so thankful for that. But secondly, I also want to suggest to you that the resurrection of Jesus is something you have to investigate. It's one of those revealing things about the true Christian faith. There's much for us to rejoice in in the resurrection of Jesus, but there's one thing in particular that I want us to grasp hold of, and it's the very thing that the women grasped hold of, and that is what the resurrection says about the identity of Jesus. You see, the women had responded correctly. They worshipped Jesus because they understood that the resurrection means Jesus is... He is who he said he was. The way, the truth, the life, the vine the bread of life, living water, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, that he is God. 
Don't do it, but if you did, flick back to Matthew chapter 1. If you were to do that, you see Matthew starts with this genealogy of Jesus. What is that? It's a royal lineage. From the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as king. You have the wise men, these oriental kings, and they come to him. We don't know how many of them there are, but they come to him and they bow before Jesus and recognize him as king. Matthew's gospel is at pains to tell us that Jesus is king. King means ruler. It means sovereign. And now as the gospel ends, Matthew 28, it's the same. Jesus is the resurrected king. And I wonder, do you know that? When you think of Jesus, do you think of him as king? Is he your king? He appears to the women. What does he say? Verse 10. Go tell my brothers, send them to Galilee. And then verse 16, the reading which we're looking at today, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. We have the scene set, the resurrected Christ, the 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee. Undoubtedly more people looking and listening in, in Galilee at the time to what Jesus would say. And by the power of God's grace, through his spirit, he's retained his word for us. So we may listen in as well. So we may look and hear that by the privilege of God that he's given us what God is saying to his disciples, to the ones then and to the ones now. As we look at these 61 words, we're just going to answer three simple questions today. Those questions are, what are we called to do? How are we called to do it? And I think most importantly, as I said before, why are we to do it? You got those? What, how, and why? Okay, let's look at this speech and let's answer those questions. Look verse 18 to 20. Jesus has got the 11 disciples on the mountaintop in Galilee and he says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what is it we are called to do, the disciples of Jesus are called to do? There's a lot of advice in here. But in the original language, the Greek, that this was written, there's only one of these bits of advice that has extra emphasis, the imperative, the, the primary directive that's given. And it's right there at the very beginning of verse 19. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. And in the original language, that's the emphasis. That's the main thing from which every other bit of direction will flow. A couple of things for us to notice. Firstly, Jesus is not in the habit of making suggestions. He's not a suggestion, suggesting making Messiah. Have you noticed it before? He's a commandment giving Messiah. And this is one of them. This is not a hint. To be a disciple is to be someone who makes other disciples. Disciples of all nations. Now, what's a disciple? A disciple is someone who hears, understands, and continues to obey Jesus' teaching. To make it as clear as we possibly can with one another, what Jesus is commanding here is for those of us here who are disciples of Jesus, for every disciple of Jesus, we are to be involved in making other disciples. That to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Now how do you make a disciple? Well, there's, there's only one way that occurs. The Bible is clear. There's only one way anyone becomes a disciple, and that's through the power of the good news of Jesus, the gospel. 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only way anyone can be saved, through trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel is what saves. So how do people hear the gospel? Well, there's a wide variety of ways, but often, in fact, I'm going to say usually, it's through evangelism. Through someone, somewhere, writing, texting, emailing, YouTubing, talking, sharing the good news of Jesus. That person hears it, repents and believes. That's evangelism and that's the call. But take note what else he says here. To all nations. And you want to be aware of this, but that would have been a really shocking thing for the disciples to hear because they were Jewish. And up to that point in Jewish history, the Jews certainly thought that God's interests had been exclusively about them. But here, the fulfillment of God's purposes is now extended in calling his people no longer just the Jew, but the Samaritan, the Roman, the pagan, the Greek, the Australian, the New Zealander, the Samoan, the Tongan, the Papua New Guinean, even the American, even the English. Is this streaming? Even the English. The Indian, the Sri Lankan, the Chinese. We ought to go to all nations, people of every creed, every color, are called to be disciples. Now, the disciples would have been shocked to hear it, but actually they shouldn't have been if they were familiar with their Bibles. Because God, throughout all of the Old Testament even, had been signposting, leaving little breadcrumbs along the way to show us his intentions. Let me show you what I mean. Have a look at verse 5 and verse 10. The disciples are told, the angel and the Jesus, the angel and Jesus tell the women to send the disciples to Galilee. And verse 16, we see them arrive at a mountain in Galilee. Now, there's no accidents in the Bible. Jesus doesn't say things accidentally. Why has he said Galilee? Well, let me give you, let's work out some geography here. Galilee uh, is around 160 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And the disciples would have to go there by foot. So Jesus is talking to the women in Jerusalem and then sending everyone 160 kilometers away on foot. That is not like saying, oi, Let's go to Aaron Affair Maccas. Let's meet there. It's not even like saying, Oi, let's meet at um, Wyong Maccas. Let's do that. This is Tari. Okay, he's sending you on foot to Tari, which, if you're tuning from Tari, what a privilege. However, <laughs> that is a long way. Jesus is intentional. Why is he sending him to Galilee? Because it's a place of deep spiritual and personal significance to Jesus and his followers. You see, it's in this countryside, in the rural part of Galilee, that Jesus came from. It's where he began his earthly ministry. It's where the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 takes place, a mountaintop in Galilee. But there's something deeper and more significant going on as well. With your Bible, if you've got it there or on your phone, flip back to Matthew chapter 4. Can you do that for me quickly? Matthew chapter 4. Now, this is just before um, Jesus begins his, his ministry. Okay, my Bible actually has got the subtitle, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus begins his ministry, which is helpful. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. I just want to read out to you four verses. Listen, listen to this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, 
Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus began his earthly ministry as he would end it, proclaiming the light, the light of the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. On a mountaintop in Galilee, Jesus proclaimed his mission and ours. Now, this would have been a shocking thing for the, 20, for, the, for the first century Jewish ear to hear. They thought it was all about them. But let's be honest, this is a shocking thing for the 21st century ear to hear as well. Because this is a claim of exclusivity. Jesus is saying, go to every nation, don't matter what nation. Doesn't matter what's going on there. Doesn't matter the flag, the president, the prime minister. Doesn't matter the religion, the color. Go there and proclaim this truth. This is a, tr- a proclamation that truth trumps culture. And that is not a politically correct thing to say, is it? That truth trumps culture. That I don't care what's going on in that country, in that nation. You are to go there. That's an awkward thing to hear in this day and age, isn't it? What right does Jesus have to say that? Well, go back to Matthew 28. Look at 18 and 19 again. Verse 18 and 19. Jesus came to them and said, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Now, that word therefore, it means because, as in because of what I've just said, go and make disciples. What did he just say? All authority is mine. It's an astonishing claim. Authority means power, privilege, right, permission to do and act in certain ways. We give the police some authority. Uh, medical staff, some authority. Politicians, maybe a bit too much authority. We do these type of things. That's what we do. All authority. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been displaying authority. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is preaching and the listeners, they hear his authority. Matthew chapter 9, he does a miracle. He, 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 he heals a paralyzed man and forgives his sins, displaying the authority. The people are amazed at his authority. But here in his new resurrected form, the resurrected Christ, the Son of God, his power and authority over death itself unquestionable, he now makes a new declaration. All authority is heaven and earth is mine. Not just over illness and disease and teaching and the weather and death, but over people and places. Now what does that mean? Well, if you took out your smartphone right now and go to Google Maps, You know, you can zoom in close enough to see every single street. And if you zoom out far enough, you can actually see the planet. I want you to imagine this is a magical Google Maps, though, because you can zoom out all the way to see the entire universe. Can you imagine that one? The billions and billions of solar systems and galaxies. From the smallest street to the largest solar system, what Jesus is saying What all authority means is there is not one millimeter of this universe that Jesus has not looked at and proclaimed mine. 
not one country, not one nation, not one culture, not one person. And that means there's not one person that you know who isn't existing under the authority of Jesus. There's not one person you know outside the authority of Jesus, more powerful than the authority of Jesus. Doesn't matter their background, their beliefs, their bank balance. No one outside of his authority. He is God. The true God. So what are we to do? Well, disciples are to make disciples of all nations. We are to see to it that there is nowhere the glory and power and kingship of Jesus is not known. And for some of us, that will look like going overseas. For all of us, it will look like considering going overseas to countries who currently do not know Jesus, places where the gospel of Jesus is not proclaimed. But for most of us, it will not look like going to other nations. It will look like staying and doing mission and evangelism in this nation, in your family, on your street, in your workplace. We are called to love this nation and proclaim the gospel. That's what we are to do. So how, question two, are we to do it? Look again, verse 18 to 20. Within these 61 words, Jesus gives us, it looks like two, but it's actually three, ing words, I-N-G, doing words. Three words that are overflows, actions that take place from the original command. What are we to do? Make disciples of all nations. How? Well, it's by going, baptizing, and teaching. The first one is go, Go, therefore go. And that word in the original language is going. Now, what does that mean? Thankfully, we don't need too much explanation. What's go? Well, it's the opposite of stay. So if you're staying, you're doing the wrong thing. What does go mean? It doesn't mean necessarily going overseas, although, again, being prepared to, absolutely. Think of it more like get up and go. Be proactive. Don't be the reactive evangelist. Just waiting around for someone to come and ask you, excuse me. What is the meaning of life? Has that ever happened to you? Don't, I mean, if it has, that's great. And I want to say it might happen from time to time, but don't depend on that as your evangelistic strategy. Going means get up and going, being proactive. Secondly, baptizing. We had to baptize in the name, not names, name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Baptism, which is the dunking or sprinkling by water, was the public initiation rite for the followers of Jesus. It doesn't make someone a Christian. It's what someone does after they've become a Christian. So we're to bring people who aren't followers of Jesus to be followers of Jesus and then baptize in them. The public declaration of faith. And take note, baptize not in the separate names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. No, but in the name. Jesus is saying to identify them as followers of me, who is God. Thirdly, Verse 20, teaching. Teaching them what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The disciples are not called to make people who make decisions, but to make disciples. See that difference? Disciples are people who follow, not for a short time, but for the long time, for the lifetime, to follow until the end. How do we see to it that people follow Jesus? By teaching them. That's why we as a church are so serious about God's word. That's why we as a church spend time, growth groups, preaching on a Sunday, uh, meeting up with one another, 
in God's word. We're obeying the command of Jesus to teach one another, to teach each other to obey. So what's the big picture here that we get out of that? Well, I want to make it clear that making disciples is not solely an act of evangelism. Although it is an act of evangelism and we need more and more of evangelism. Just for whatever reason, within our kind of culture of churches, evangelical churches that we exist, often what what tends to happen uh, sometimes is that evangelism is really difficult, so it's the first thing that falls off. We focus a lot on Bible reading with each other, but we tend to move away because it's tricky and hard from evangelism. That should never be. Evangelism must be our mission statement. But not at the mercy then of disciple making and forming and keeping. We are to be involved in all of it. I wonder, can you remember the name of the person who first told you about Jesus? Can you remember them? I can't, mainly because I had so many of them. I was really lucky to be from a Christian family. So it was my parents, my siblings, friends of siblings, Sunday school kids, church leaders, youth group leaders. It was people I knew and people I barely knew. I remember when I was around 23, 24, I'm not a Christian, um, I'm living in Townsville. Oh, mate, the jewel of the far north. Townsville, what a place. It's beautiful. You've got to go. Anyway, whatever the case, I'm up at Townsville, I'm not a Christian, but for whatever reason, on a Sunday, I've got nothing to do. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to church. So I go to church. I'm sitting in there for a few minutes, and my mate, Cliff, messages me on my phone, Oi, you know, Dave, come for a drink, Sunday sesh or whatever. And I was like, yeah, stuff it. So I got up and I walked there. I call a cab. And I'm waiting inside the, cab, the, the church. The taxi comes, picks me up. A few minutes into the trip, the taxi driver, the cabbie turns around and says, oh, you're church, were you? And I said, oh, yeah. He goes, what were you doing there? And I said, oh, just sussing stuff out. Family's Christian. And he then began to ask me all about my spiritual beliefs. What do you think about church? What do you think about God? He then asked my permission to pull the car over to continue the conversation. I said, mate, as long as you turn that fare off, you can do anything you want. Okay, just press pause. So he did. He then turned around and began to share with me that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. At the end of that conversation, as he dropped me off at the pub, he gave me his card, which has his details and the details of church on it on the back. And he said, if you want, I'll come and pick you up and I won't even charge you. I'll do it for free. I'll come and pick you up for church if you want to come next Sunday. Now, I walked out of that cab and I ripped it up and I walked away. What an idiot. But it wasn't until later, much later, when I became a Christian, I realized what that man was doing. And I don't know his name. I trust I'll see him in heaven. But he was fulfilling this commandment. He was trying to make a disciple. But of course, after I became a Christian, it didn't stop. I joined a great church, had a couple of guys get around me and invite me out, read the Bible with me, taught me what it was, showed me, displayed, and actually answered all my questions about what it was to be a disciple, what it looked like practically. Who are the people who have done that for you? Let me ask you a different question. Who are the people you've done that for? Who are the people you are actively engaged with now? in doing this for. This is the intimately personal part of the the Great Commission. Jesus is calling all of us to be involved. He's calling all of us to make disciples. All of us to be involved in evangelism, in disciple keeping, 
in sharing and, and, and fostering and growing with one another. But of course, there's one final question I do want us to consider here this morning, and I think it's the most important one, as I said before, and it's the question, why we are to do it. Now, if someone had come up to you in the street and said, why do you evangelize? Why would you evangelize? Why would you do that? I think many of us would say something like, well, because it's how the lost are saved. It's because we want to see people go to heaven. And I want to say, amen, amen, yes, absolutely. All those reasons are true. But I do not believe those reasons are the primary motivation that God gives us in Scripture for being involved in evangelism. And what I want to suggest to you today is that by discovering or perhaps rediscovering, regrasping hold of the actual primary motivation God gives us, well, my hope is that that will go a long way towards transforming how you feel about evangelism, if indeed it is something you find difficult, which you have a pulse and a heartbeat, it probably is. So what is the reason God gives us to be involved? Go back a little bit, verse 16. I want you to take note of the response of the disciples. Verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped but some doubted. The 11 disciples, the men who had abandoned Jesus, 11, not 12, because Judas had already gone. Reports of the resurrected Jesus, they see the resurrected Jesus, some of them worship, some of them doubt, and that word means hesitate, which I think is a beautiful part, verifying the truthfulness of Scripture, and a beautiful part for those of us who doubt too, because these men we know didn't stay doubting, they worshipped. Just like the women earlier, they see Jesus, they worship. Now what does worship mean? Worship is to give something its due honour or praise. Like an Olympian clapping an Olympian when they get a gold medal and they get the medal around their neck. Worship is the absolute right response because in the Bible, worship is reserved not for prophets, not for priests, not for pastors, not for rabbis, not for teachers, but for God alone. It's what Jesus deserves. He deserves glory. He deserves praise. And all these worshiping people, they worship Jesus. They hear the command and the commission to go and they go. And actually, that's exactly what happens all throughout the Bible. We won't go there now. But the Old Testament reading was Isaiah chapter 6. Check it out later if you get a chance. Isaiah, the prophet, taken to the throne room of God, falls before his knees. And God goes, who will go? And Isaiah in worship says, here am I, send me. Evangelism always starts with worship. And that is the primary motivation giving. So how does worship praising God, acknowledging him for who he is. How does that lead to evangelism? Well, it's all about grieving. As Christian people, we need to grieve when Jesus is not given the worship he deserves. It's the motivation for and the outcome of evangelism. I mean, my dad... Um, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, my dad had a job which was prominent and then he was in the media all the time and the media hated him and they used to do little cartoons of him and make fun of him and it's horrible. There was a bloke at my work called Jared and uh, not against you if your name is Jared, it wasn't you but it's a different guy. Jared 
um, used to find this hilarious. And he would bring in the newspaper clippings and the articles and whatnot to laugh. One day, um, the television program on the ABC called The Chaser, does everyone remember The Chaser, the show? They would follow people around and make them look stupid, and they did that to my dad. They got him out of work, and they followed him around with a camera, and he looked foolish. He looked really stupid. And I hadn't seen it. And I get up to work that morning, and Jared pulls out his laptop and shows it to me, laughing. Now, I have no idea why he would think I would find that funny. <laughs> and that was the straw that broke the camel's back, because I told him in the firmest possible language imaginable, before I was a Christian, I want to say, don't you ever, ever talk about my father that way. Your dad might be an idiot and a scumbag. My dad isn't. Not because of his title, but because he's my dad. Don't ever speak about him that way. I wonder if you see where this is going. It should grieve us when our God is not acknowledged as king. It should grieve us when God is not given worship, when he's not acknowledged, when he's ignored or sighed on. It should grieve us when we do that, and don't we do that? But it should grieve us when others do it. Worship is the motivation. I love God. I see who he is. I want to see his name proclaimed. And the goal, I want to see other people do it. There's only one way God is given the worship he deserves. And it's not through Christianized countries and prayer in schools and Christian politicians and so on and so forth. The only way God is given the worship he deserves is when men and women, when boys and girls, when sinners bear their knee before God, repent and believe. When they acknowledge him as king, that's it. We should grieve and other people don't do that because it dishonors our great God. You see, that's the difference between my response about my dad, which I responded to with aggression, and this. When people insulted my father, I responded with aggression. When people didn't acknowledge him, I responded with anger. But when people don't acknowledge our God, we don't respond with aggression or anger or hate, but with love and evangelism. John Piper, an American minister, he puts it this way. This quote is excellent. Listen to this. Evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not evangelism, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, Evangelism will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Now I want to put this to you. Can you think of a better way to spend your life, to dedicate your years than to worshiping God and desiring to see others worship Him as well? We are to make disciples of all nations, to evangelize, to go, to baptize, to teach. Why? For His glory because he is worth it, for his glory, because he deserves it, for his glory, so his name is lifted high. Not for us, not for EV Church, not for any of those reasons, but for God. Let me give you three things to take home with. The first one is, I hope, encouraging. Evangelism is tough. Evangelism will always be tough this side of heaven. But worship 
is worth it. I want to say to you right now that if you find the idea, the concept of sharing your faith and talking to others about Jesus paralyzingly difficult, relax. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're spiritually weak. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Okay, telling other people about Jesus is terrifying. Amen? Amen. Yes, it's very hard. But it's worth it. It's worth it because God is worth it. And it's funny how when we get a change in perspective, it changes what we do. Look at these men, okay? These men terrified of other people. They're terrified of other people, these disciples, aren't they? Because when Jesus is arrested, they run. And yet these very same men, after hearing, after seeing, after being commanded, what do they do? They don't run, they go. They take what Jesus has told them. And within 300 years, that group of nobodies, that group of, of cowards, had changed the very shape of the world. We are direct descendants of what they did and took and said. These men ran into the jaws of death. All of them, bar one, murdered brutally for their faith. Why? Because of perspective. The glory of God is worth it. And I just find like, when I'm talking to my neighbor and he's out the front with his bourbon and his smoke and I'm like, oh, how do I... Gee, look at the sky. Who made the blue? Who made it blue like that? And I hesitate and I, I remember that God is worth it. That God is bigger. It doesn't matter. These, these awkward things, these are just me. I can push through it. And what he says, how he responds, that's not up to me, it's up to God. Success in evangelism is not the conversion of the person who hears it. It's the proclamation of the glory of God the proclamation of the cross. Secondly, whilst it's great to do things as a solo flyer, to do things solo on your own, evangelism is often, usually, most effective when done in a team. I don't know if you like sport. I love sport. What I love about team sport is that someone gets the ball and they pass it. Someone else gets that ball and they chip kick. Someone else collects it and scores the try. But who gets the points? The team. And whilst one of you might have the connection and someone else might invite them along and someone else will talk to them at explaining Christianity or at life or someone might invite them to Summerfest and then someone else might chat, who gets the points? God. <laughs> it's much easier and more effective when we work together. Indeed, that's to be our mission statement, together. Here at church, we do things deliberately for this to be as easy as possible. Life, explaining Christianity, Summerfest, Summer Series, uh, the youth program, everything we're doing is so that people could hear the truth about Jesus. For some of you, that might be difficult, just relationally. It might be a point in your life where you're not engaging with lots of people who don't know Jesus. Well, I'll ask you to do one thing, and this is for all of us, actually, and it's the most important thing, the most powerful thing that you can do, that we all can do, is pray. Pray. Pray for people to come and know God. And the final thing I'll say is that God uses imperfect people for his perfect plans. Do you know that perhaps it's very possible you're hesitating on evangelism because you don't feel worthy of being a herald of God? That maybe you feel so guilty about your sin, recent or ancient, or maybe you feel ill-equipped and ill-designed that you can't be confident enough, you don't know what to say. Take these 11 imperfect people, abandoned and betrayed Jesus, what qualified them to be heralds of the Most High? Nothing. 
God chose them and brought them into his family. No training course or technique. The worship of Jesus qualified them. My dear friends, God uses imperfect people for his perfect plans and he will use you to see disciples made and grown. Imagine discovering the cure to COVID. You know, this disease which just terrified so many people. You've got it. You've worked hard in the lab and you've discovered it. Now, what do you do with it? You keep it to yourself? Do you go, oh, it might be awkward for me to tell people. In fact, there's, there's actually people who don't even believe in COVID, so I'm not going to give it to them. Or alternatively, do you hire one of those skywriters? Do you take out ads in the newspaper and say, I've got it! The cure is here! The war is over! My friends, we don't have the cure to COVID. We have the cure to eternal death. We can't keep it to ourselves. Let's be prayerful, bold, courageous, partnered together, willing to go for his glory. Let me finish in prayer. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, our Lord Jesus who died and rose from the dead, who reigns in heaven at the right hand of his Father. Lord, thank you for Jesus. I pray, Father, for all of us that you would give us boldness and courage to be effective disciple makers, evangelists, people involved in evangelism, people involved in teaching, in prayer. Lord, we pray for thousands and thousands more people on this beautiful coast to come and know and love you as Lord and Saviour, to worship you as you deserve. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.